Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, it's John. This week's episode is a re-airing of our episode with Tony Shea. If you haven't heard, Tony unexpectedly passed away last week. And since this episode meant a lot to Chris and I, we just wanted to, to share it with everybody since it was recorded in 2011, and I'm sure not everybody's had a chance to hear it. Okay, please enjoy. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Chris Stemp here. And John Rojas here as well. Wait a sec. We just threw everybody for a curveball there. John, when do you think the last time you've been in the intro along with me? It's been a while, but I feel like we did some end of year things together. Oh. We did our whiskey tasting. Speaking of end of year, you know we got to do something this year, but we're going to have to do it virtually. Oh, I know. Oh, we should just do that and then record the Zoom video for it. Yes. All right, everybody, you heard it here first. An on-the-go brainstorm of what we're going to do for our drunken December 31st or whatever. Are there 31 days in December? Yes. Okay. December- and we need to figure out, too, like, are we going to do, are we going to do whiskey again? Or are we going to try something different? Like, you know what we could do? We could ride this tequila wave. We could do some of the rocks tequila. There's a tequila wave right now? Uh, well, yeah, because of The Rock, man, Terramana. I have no idea what you're talking about. Oh, really? Mr. Instagram, you don't follow The Rock? You know he has the most followers out of anyone in the world. On Instagram? Yeah. 
Oh man. I'm not on any of the the Facebook stuff outside of my comments on your Instagram posts, your farm life posts. True. Get, wait, do we want to spend a minute? Do we want to cover my yeah I've, into I've Instagram stardom? Stempy's army to 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 trend. We have not talked about this yet. Like no. the listeners are hearing this live. How do you feel about my new like bend towards Instagram? Oh, I mean, I love it. Like I was, the, I think I was the first one on there that said more content, please. As soon as you said it, I said he wants it. I'll bring it to him because there's just a lot of random stuff happening out here on the yeah, farm. Great, I love those chickens. So, all right. So, yeah, we'll do some kind of tasting and debauchery. Do we want to like submit, have questions submitted or anything? Why not? Let's do it. Yeah. All right. If you have any questions for John and I, smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com. We will answer them on our standard end of year holiday podcast, which we will Zoom record. We will get drunk on it and we will drop some knowledge. Sounds like a deal. All right. So, John, why don't you tell us a little bit about why you are gracing us with your presence today? Oh, man, I wish it was it was for good reason. But uh, a couple of days ago, Tony Shea passed away from complications, I think, from injuries. He had like a family house fire. And I was talking to Amanda and I was like, man, you know what? That Tony Shea interview was well, first of all. I think it was like episode 11 or 14. It was back in early 2011, which is nuts. Makes me feel super old. Uh, But it's one of the interviews that we've done that's had such a lasting impression on me. So I just thought it'd be good to, you know, touch base on it again. We can re-air it, especially end of year. Yeah. Uh, But yeah, man, it was, you know, sad news hearing that, that Tony had passed away and saw an outpour of love from from Twitter, from like tech Twitter and everybody that was touched by him, figure we could uh, do some type of little thing for him. Yeah. When you reached out and you said, Hey, we should do this together and we should re-air Tony's episode. I was like, I literally had the exact same thought. And in fact, my mom did. She texted me and said, you need to re-air Tony. It's so sad to hear what happened. And you know, we didn't plan on having an episode this week because Thanksgiving and all of that, but I, I feel like it's kind of to honor him a little bit. You know, I thought it'd be nice to take a moment and say what his episode meant to each of us, because I know for you and me as well, it was a turning point of sorts. It was a tipping point. It, it was more than just, oh, this is cool. Um, so I, I want to ask you that. What was it about Tony's? You've always said he is in your top five in terms of episodes. Why is that? What sticks with you? Well, there was two things that really have stuck with me since that interview. And one of the things was even before the interview, I think it was your mom that put us in touch with his assistant, somebody that he worked with. Yeah. Somebody like that. Something. There was some chain of command there. I have no idea. It's not like we're friends with him. There was a, no. a, a connection. Yeah. No, there, there was that connection there. We reached out via email and his assistant immediately was like, yes, Tony would absolutely do your podcast. And I remember both of us sitting there be, you know, and asking why, 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 and why did you get back to us so fast? Yeah. But Tony's assistant said that, you know, for entrepreneurs and people that are starting things, he had this policy of always saying yes and at least giving people 15 minutes of his time. So that is something that that stuck with me. Mm -hmm. And then the second thing was 
you know, one of the things that he mentions in the interview with us where he's talking about taking risks and all those kinds of things, and he just straight out asks us, hey, what's the worst thing that can happen to you right now? You know, 10,000 years ago, you make a mistake, you go outside, you get eaten by a saber-toothed tiger, you're dead. Now, the worst thing that happens for most people that are fortunate to have, you know, friends and family and all that kind of stuff is you have to swallow your pride and go to them and say, hey, I failed at this thing. I need to crash on your couch until I get back on my feet, that kind of thing. And that's always stuck with me where it's, you know, the worst thing that can happen to us right now probably isn't that bad. Mm-hmm. So being able, you know, to uh, kind of have the confidence to take risks and try new things and all that kind of stuff, because the worst thing that happens is you fail, and then you just get up and try again. Yeah. And of course, I mean, he was referring to the worst thing that can happen when you take on some new adventure. But yeah, when you think about it. Also think about his death. I mean, that's truly the worst thing. But the reason I bring that up is because. I imagine if we could ask him, he, I mean, he lived his life. I mean, the amount of people he impacted, the way he changed so much, like not just how we buy shoes, but how companies do customer service. He genuinely was the innovator in that space. Oh, and he reshaped Vegas in terms of like the tech space and the startup space. I mean, the things that he did for that community were just phenomenal. And what strikes me is you remember it a little bit better than I do uh, him saying yes and his assistant. Cause you're right. That is how it went down. I remember just saying why, like what has happened, uh, <laughs> but, but you're right about the answer where he said, people doing something new. I want to give them my time. And here's why that's a really interesting. And I think pretty solid uh, mantra to live by is if it wasn't for Tony, there is a, I don't want to say a significant, but a, but a decent chance we aren't still doing this today. Would you agree? A hundred percent. Yeah. And so think about his 25 minutes or whatever he gave us for that has really propelled us. And I'll talk about why to doing this for, and this is what's crazy. almost exactly 10 years as of like today. Do you realize that we're on our 10 year anniversary pretty much right now? Yeah. I can't remember when the first episode came out, but it was sometime in the beginning of December, right? I think it was right around fall, winter of 2010. That's crazy. I know, right? So my point is, 10 years later, I'm not going to say we have achieved anything close to what he has or really much at all with the podcast, but we've gotten some great emails. We've heard from people, the value we add, the, the things we've done. So talk about his 20 minutes adding however much we've added. And then I think we've tried to do the same. We've helped people launch podcasts. We've connected with people. We recently had a listener reach out and say, actually, we had two, that they made successful career transitions to something they enjoyed more and not entirely, but partly due to the podcast and what they learned and the motivation. So think about that. That's lives impacted. That is an exponential impact utilizing your time in the right way. That's what Tony was all about, in my opinion. The other thing I want to say that stuck out to me about Tony's interview is I remember being baffled because you'll hear this in the interview, but he basically invested all of his money, I think plus some, into Zappos, right? So he sold his company. You could probably tell it because it's tech, but for millions and millions of dollars, he was like 25. He's worth tens of millions of dollars. And he gets to a point where he says, 
all of my money was in Zappos. And when I mean all, he's like, I mean almost everything. And I remember saying like, dude, why didn't you just keep a little bit of money? Like, you didn't have to put it all in. Cause that seems crazy to me. Let's say you're worth 50 million. Wouldn't you just keep 10 and gamble with like the 40? And his answer straight up was, well, I would just start another company. Yeah. And even crazier, remember, he didn't just jump right into doing that, though, because he started playing poker and day trading first, too. (laughs) Do you remember that? Yeah. Like, how crazy is that, that you sell a company for 250 million plus, and then you're like, all right, I'm going to now day trade. And play poker to try to do some, you know, make some more money here and then move into venture capitalism and then say, okay, never mind. I'm going to uh, work for, for Zappos and eventually become CEO of Zappos and then mm-hmm. sell that company for a billion dollars or whatever he sold it for. It's a pretty incredible, pretty incredible story for a pretty incredible dude. I have to say. And like I said, he was the reason we kept doing it. I I mean, I remember he legitimized our little project. That's how I felt about it. I was like, you know, we had, we had some great conversations. We talked to some amazing people, but 10, 12, 13 episodes in we're at that time, what, 26 years old, 27 years old, something like that to get to talk to the CEO of Zappos was like, wait, are, are we onto something? Because Keep in mind, we started this to get advice from people who have kind of made it or have found their passion or something. So to be talking to Tony Shea, I said, well, I think we'll probably do this forever. <laughs> yeah, he was episode 14. So it was March 2nd, 2011. Wow. And then from there, you know, we started getting some but some other big names too. I mean... Andrew Breitbart was on shortly after. Yep. Brene Brown fairly soon after. Gretchen Rubin was on shortly after. Seth Godin. You know, it's funny you say that, just to tell the listeners, because people often ask, how do you get these guests and things like that? And now it's kind of old news. People know how to do this. But Tony was the reason we could get a lot of these people. Because you say, hey, we had on the CEO of Zappos. And people go, oh, that makes sense. They must be big, right? And so that's a lot of the reason why others got on. The other thing is when you think about the names you just rattled off, Gretchen Rubin, Brene Brown, et cetera, this was before they were the names they are today. Are we, is that like part of our show? Do we kind of bring new talent to the forefront? <laughs> I, I, I might, I have to say we might be doing that. We, we'll take full credit for Brene Brown's <laughs> career. Yes. So this, was, this was, you know, I think it was one book in, this was pre-Oprah. Oh, it definitely was. It was after, was it one book? I'm pretty sure it was, well, it was either one or two books. Yeah, that's a a good point. We'll re-air that one one day. Speaking of Brene Brown, not to get off topic, but how many downloads do you think her episode has? Do you want me to answer honestly? Yes, this is going in the episode. Oh, yeah, but I mean, I know, right? So it's... Well, you can't know because we've gone through like five servers or whatever you call them, five hosts. Oh, true. But I, I guess on our current host right now, it's probably around 180,000. So what's crazy is we've only been on that host for what? Four or five years? Four or five years. Do you think her episode's been downloaded half a million times? Mm, possibly, but prop. That's a tough one. It is because this is all of these, these 200,000 in the past five years, that's all long tail. 
right? That that doesn't include the initial airing when we were, you know, ranked in iTunes, all that stuff. I, I just, I always think about that because that is a massive number of people. And let's be honest, it was eight years ago and I'm sure the quality content was not great. So that's half a million people who tried out our podcast and were like, yeah, no thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I try not to think about that. Yeah. Yeah. That doesn't do anybody any good. So look, this is us just kind of giving a thank you and a RIP to Tony Shea for not only what he did for the business world and for customer service, but for a little podcast like ours when we came to him. So we wanted to bring this to you. He dropped some great knowledge in this episode and uh, it's just our way of remembering him. So that's all I have to say. John, uh, why don't you take us home on this one? Don't hold anything against us. Remember this episode aired in March, 2011. I don't even remember what equipment we were using. Ooh. We were also 14 episodes in. We didn't really know what we were doing. So, you know, and it's our 27-year-old selves. Cut yeah. it black here. But we do hope that you enjoy. We hope that if you are in the United States, that you had a great Thanksgiving with your friends and family and everybody else that you're staying safe, staying healthy during this crazy, crazy time. So please enjoy our episode with Tony Shea. Your parents were pretty strict in regards to how they raised you. They stressed academic excellence, musical abilities, things like that. And this style of parenting I know is fairly normal amongst many Eastern cultures, but it's different from many American parents' idea of how to raise a child. What do you think is the best approach? And do you wish you had more leniency as a child? Or are you glad you were pushed? I don't know if there's any one right answer to that. I think it really, you know, there's benefits to combining those approaches, but I would also say really a lot of it comes down to the individual personality of the kid and the parents and their interests. And so, for example, I have two younger brothers and my response to my parents being strict was because my parents wanted me to go to college and become a doctor, eventually get a PhD and so on. And so for me, going the path of being an entrepreneur was kind of my way of rebelling against my parents. And so for me personally, I think if they weren't as strict and were more encouraging of going down the entrepreneur path, I think that would have been better for me, but not necessarily for my brothers or, you know, for, for someone that has a different personality. And, you know, there, there are some people that really benefit from that exposure and parents being stricter and, and so on. And I think like any family, my parents actually became less strict with each child. So I was definitely the one that they were the most strict with. You also mentioned in your book something that I believe has crossed everyone's mind at some point. You said that early on you thought you would work hard when you were young so that later in life you could do what you wanted. However, oftentimes people say that you shouldn't put your dreams on hold because you may never get back around to them. Which, by the way, is one of the reasons I admire Fred in your book. I think that's exactly what he did. He had a lot of responsibilities, but he followed his dream and it ended up working out really great for him. Do you think that people should be willing to sacrifice following their dream or their passions early on to guarantee a paycheck and stability and things like that? Because obviously there is a lot to be said for making a good living and providing for your family. Well, A, I would say there are no guarantees. So 
a lot of times what you think is a guarantee could be a false sense of security. Uh, and then I would say the flip side, though, is that we live in an Asian society where the worst case scenario is actually not that bad. And I think there's a lot of assumptions that people have in terms of like, oh, if whatever doesn't work out, then there's no alternative solution when, you know, the worst case scenario for probably anyone listening to this podcast is maybe you need to you know, suck up your pride and crash the friend for a while versus you know, 20,000 years ago, the worst case scenario was you would starve to death or be eaten by a saber-toothed tiger. Like you would actually die. Whereas the worst case scenario for most people listening to this is not you will die. Good point. I never really looked at the extremes like that. One thing that I think you and I have in common is that you talk about doing minimal work and getting maximum return. This goes back to the days when you tricked your parents into thinking you were practicing the piano. And then at college, you tended to pick classes based on having an easier workload. And even later, when you worked at Oracle, you tended to enjoy the lax schedule for a good pay. Where do you think this idea originates from and how do you feel about that? Because oftentimes I feel like people may misinterpret it as being lazy or unmotivated, but personally I think it's just working smarter and not harder. Well, for me, for the examples you came up with, actually I think it, it was for me being lazy and unmotivated. And, and probably that's the biggest thing is just feeling unmotivated. You know, if you're doing something that you're actually passionate about, then it doesn't seem like work and time just flies. And you know, that's one of the lessons that I learned is just follow your passion. I, I think as a society, we've kind of been accustomed to way of thinking like you know, back in the factory days when you just had to do however many hours of unrewarding work just to feed your family. And today there's so many opportunities that didn't exist even 10 years ago that definitely I think there's opportunity for people to be able to align what they actually do during the day with what they're actually passionate about. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about when you started Link Exchange. I was fascinated by the fact that, you know, you did quit that job at Oracle, you know, not really having a plan in mind, but just knowing that that wasn't what you wanted to do. What was your mindset when you had quit Oracle? And then when you eventually did start Link Exchange and you, you sold it to Microsoft for $265 million, how did that affect you at such a young age? I guess... For me, it kind of goes back to you know quitting Oracle, just realizing the worst-case scenario is not that bad. And so many people put their lives on hold or, or never figure out what they actually want to do or what they're passionate about because they've been stuck in an unrewarding job for you know, 10, 20 years. And so you know, you're never going to get to wherever you're going to end up if you aren't moving along and being true to yourself. And, and I would say that's probably maybe the best guiding principle in general for, for life or, or in business is just be true to yourself. And anytime you realize you're not being true to yourself, you have the power to change that. In terms of being in Link Exchange selling to Microsoft, this was back in 1998. You know, so we got lucky with the timing. It was uh, during the dot-com boom. So definitely was in the position of not having to work again for the rest of my life. So I actually ended up spending about a year or so investing in different companies, and Zappos just happened to be one of them. But during that year, I realized that for me, investing was actually kind of boring. I felt like I was sitting on the sidelines, and I really missed being part of building something. So uh, basically within a year, I ended up joining Zappos full-time, and you know, part of that process was also realizing that once you don't have to worry about, say, 
you know, paying rent or basic necessities like food, money doesn't necessarily buy incremental happiness, which I think most of society assumes is true. But there's actually been plenty of studies that show, you know, once you're above, for example, 75K roughly in annual income, that the additional income actually doesn't buy more happiness. I wanted to talk to you about what you mentioned in terms of how you were investing in companies before you came across Zappos. You were probably asked for funding by a lot of people when you were doing this. Can you tell us what you looked for in an investment and what do you think most venture capitalists look for? Is it a strong business plan, a great idea? I know passion is big with you. What do you think kind of sold you? At the time, we you know, we never really done. It was myself and Alfred, and we'd never really done any investing before. So not like we really knew what we were doing. Uh, we made about twenty or so different investments, but at the time we were looking for what seemed like a good market opportunity, a team that worked well together, and I think a chance to be number one in whatever the company was in. All that being said, I, you know, we made I think the exact number was twenty-seven investments, and. Ultimately, the vast, vast majority of our returns came from Zappos. So really, I guess specifically for Zappos, it was we really liked the people there and enjoyed working with them. I, I would also say that in general, you know, the value that VCs or investors in general were able to add when Zappos started back in 99 compared to today is very different. Uh, or even back in the link exchange days, you know, to keep our servers up and running and being able to handle all the volume, that was we looked into the cost, and that was something like fifty thousand dollars a month for the equivalent bandwidth and service that you can get today for fifty dollars a month. And so, a lot of people go in with the assumption that they need to raise money, and uh, I think it's a very different world today versus ten or fifteen years ago. I know that in thinking about starting something, I oftentimes worry about where the money is going to come from. And I was going to ask you, for someone with an idea, what do you think is the best way to go about raising money these days? Basically, how do you start from the beginning? For example, it seemed like Nick just called you out of the blue, fairly unprepared with just an idea that was Zappos. And I don't think many people would recommend this strategy. So I was kind of wondering what you would recommend. Well, I would actually recommend first figuring out if you actually need the money or not. Because I think a lot of times people assume they do and and I would actually say you don't. And one one of my favorite quotes is, I think it was from Jim Collins, was that it's never a question of not having enough resources. It's a question of not having enough resourcefulness. And it's actually when you don't have a lot of money or, or any money that you're forced to be creative and really figure out how to take your business to the next level and instead of relying on money. And there's lots of things you can do. There's other ways to have the equivalent effect of raising money. For example, if my brother is actually doing a startup right now and he was talking about how he needs money to pay his employees for payroll. And so you can either, in that scenario, either raise money and then use the money to pay your employees or you can go direct to your employees and just say if you're willing to work for a reduced salary or no salary, you'll get some of the equity in the company that would have otherwise gone to that initial investor. And other examples are, for, you know, for Zappos in our early days, initially we thought we needed money in order to uh, grow our inventory, but rather than try to get a bigger loan or raise more money to grow that inventory, we found that actually 
some of that funding could effectively come from our vendors. Instead of paying them in 30 days, we partner with them and paid some of them in 60 days or 90 days, which helped the cash flow of the situation and meant that we didn't need to raise more money or borrow more money. I wanted to go a little bit into the big thing behind Zappos is the culture and the, the customer service. You know, you made a statement of saying that the culture drives the brand. Can you explain that just a little bit? Sure. I, I mean, our belief is that a company's culture and a company's brand are really just two sides of the same coin, and the brand is really just a lagging indicator of the culture. You know, for example, if you ask random person off the street what they think of the airline industry as a whole, not any specific airline, you'll probably get back responses about bad customer service, apathetic employees, and so on. And like it or not, that is the brand of the industry, even though no airline set out for that to be their brand. And I think with you know, social networking, Facebook, Twitter, blogs, and so on, that actually that lag is becoming less and less because everyone's hyper-connected and information travels so quickly. So our number one priority as a company is our culture, and our belief is that if we get the culture right, then most of the other stuff like delivering great customer service or building a long-term enduring brand or business will just happen as a natural byproduct of that. Part of your training, you show your potential employees what the culture of Zappos is, and you guys have an interesting training program where you actually offer your new hire employees money to leave after going through training or any time during training. Do you still offer that? And what successes did you guys see out of that interesting take on you know a training program? Yeah, we've uh, been doing it for several years now. And basically, at the end of the first week of training, which is when they just start their job, we make an offer to the entire class. And it started out at $100, actually now at $4,000, where basically we say we'll pay you for the time you spend training plus a bonus of $4,000 to quit and leave the company right now. And that's a standing offer until the end of our four-week training program. And then we extended a few weeks beyond that afterwards. And Every year, we found that on average, about 2 or 3% of people end up taking the offer. And so that's actually why we keep upping the offer, because we feel like not enough people are taking it. And the reason we initially made that offer was because we didn't want employees that were here just for a paycheck. Uh, for a call center rep, starting pay is $11 an hour. There's plenty of other call centers in Las Vegas. And we're really just looking for employees that believe in our long-term vision and really feel like this is the right environment and culture for them. I know that when Zappos first started, Nick was just taking pictures of shoes and putting them on a website. And obviously this won't work unless people somehow visit the website. So I was wondering what methods did Zappos use to advertise both early on when no one knew about them and also later? Even up to now, you guys are a nationally recognized company. How your marketing ideas and mediums changed? Yeah, I think we've, uh, you know, we, we advertise on keywords on Google. And so I'm sure we experimented with some of that during the early days. But uh, for the most part, our whole philosophy is let's take most of the money that we would have spent on paid advertising or paid marketing and rather spend it on that, invest into customer service and the customer experience, and then let our customers do the marketing for us through word of mouth. On any given day, about 75% of our orders are from repeat customers. And basically, the number one driver of our growth over the years from basically zero in 1999 to 2008 was when we first hit a billion dollars in gross merchandise sales. The number one driver of that growth has been through repeat customers and, and word of mouth. People are going to look at your story or your financial wherewithal and think you had it made. You sold a company early on in life. 
and you could have taken it easy after that. I don't think until diving into your book, you realize that you did put it all on the line pretty much, which is scary, but is awesome in my mind. Do you ever look back and think you could have just hung out after you sold Link Exchange and probably avoided a lot of stress along the way? Or would you have done the exact same thing? Probably would have done the exact thing. I, I mean, it just goes back to just being true to yourself. And I think if I was just hanging out and not doing anything, I'd probably be pretty bored with with life. And you know, the the other thing is, like, if for whatever reason you know, Zappos hadn't worked out, then it's not really you know, the the end of everything. I guess in my mind, it's just worst case scenario, just you know, try to start another company. Because of how the economy is now and what's going on in big corporation and industries, it seems like a lot of people are trying to start their own startups or get into small businesses so that they can kind of control day-to-day work life. For these entrepreneurs that are out there, what would be your number one piece of advice? I would say start with uh, you know blank slate and start out with imagining like if money weren't an issue, uh, you know, what would you ideally like to do? Or if you won the lottery or didn't have to work, what type of life would you want to design, lifestyle would you want to design for yourself and you know, the people in the office? And then kind of work backwards from there. And, you know, you'll have to make some adjustments to adjust to reality. But I think what a lot of people find through that exercise is there's a lot of assumptions that you don't have to assume. And so, for example, uh, for us at Zappos, in the early days of Zappos, when I actually interviewed everyone. Fred interviewed everyone. And our thought was, well, who would we choose to be around if we weren't forced to be in the office together with them every day? And that was an additional criteria that we added to the interview process, which you know, kind of evolved to today. Our HR department interviews everyone purely for culture fit, in addition to you know the standard set of interviews that they do with the hiring manager and his or her team. And they have to pass both in order to be hired. Whereas some people would assume, well, sometimes you have to hire people that you know because they have the right skill sets and experiences, even if you don't get along personality-wise with them. Uh, even if they're bad for the culture, you ha- you have to hire them. And you know, for us, we just went in with the assumption that you actually don't. You know, challenging that assumption that you have to hire, you can't add additional criteria. And for us, it's culture. All right, Tony. We know your time is valuable, and we're going to end it there. But we really appreciate you being on the show. Again, we both loved your book, Delivering Happiness. We'll be sure to put a link on our our site and recommend it to everyone. So thank you so so much for being on. Thank you for having me. And one last comment I would make is, um, yeah. I, I think this was before you were recording, but you know, you were giving me background of how you guys started with the show. And you know, if you and I think you guys basically just my understanding is started this just because it was something you were passionate about. But if if you had to go in with saying, okay, we're only going to do this if we're from the get go, we're going to get. 20,000 listeners a day and <laughs> make a business out of it like you would have never gone down that path, but you went in it just because you were passionate about it, and then now it is what it is today. And it, and, and it happened through something you couldn't have controlled or predicted. You know, that's such a good point, and one that John and I both kind of thought about after reading your book. You're such a proponent of following your passion and working hard towards what makes you happy, and then seeing your success story gives us and hopefully others the will to to go for it and see what happens without always having to think about the what-ifs and what could go wrong. So we really appreciate it, and again, thank you. Well, thanks for having me, and uh, enjoy the rest of your day.